This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market and Why Liberals Should Too, our guest today, James K. Galbraith, explores the true meaning of George Bush's corporate republic and flips conventional wisdom on its head, offering bold prescriptions for a more socially just economy. Galbraith teaches economics at the Lyndon Johnson School of Public Affairs. He is a senior scholar of the Levy Economics Institute and is chair of Economists for Peace and Security. James Galbraith, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Where are you? You're in Vermont today, are you not? I'm, I'm in Vermont, yes. Uh, well, and you do you uh, commute to Austin? Where the... Oh, no, I live in Austin, but in the summertime, I uh, try to be up here as much as possible. So it's beautiful up there, I'd say. Oh, very much so. Yeah, sure. that's wonderful. I'm glad you have a nice place for your summers. Now, uh, tell me, the Predator State, can you explain the title to us? Well, the title goes back to, to Thorsten Veblen, who gave an analysis of... The, uh, the, the economy, the American economy, the capitalist economy in general, in terms of, uh, you know, of a biological phenomenon, predators and prey. Uh, it's not a class phenomenon. It's really something which is intrinsic to all societies, in which, uh, in Veblen's view, you had a group of people, artisans, working people, women, uh, who conducted most of the productive work, and then another group of people who were, uh, uh, you know, living off of the fruits of that labor. Uh, and my argument is that the, this is what modern conservatism has actually come down to. There was a long period in which uh, conservatives argued that markets would generate benefits for everybody and basically organize the world in a way which was efficient, there were some inequalities that was trumped by the efficiency. But I think even principled conservatives brought up in that tradition recognize that that's not what we have. What we have these days is a government which is largely controlled by people who are not interested in minimizing the size of government. They're interested in using the government, uh, using the public instruments for private purposes. It's a government con- controlled for particular clientels. And we all basically know who they are. I mean, it's, a, it's a narrow group of large and powerful industrial interests. Uh, that is represented by this administration. So a lot of conservatives, uh, and I name some of them in the book, some of them have become quite good friends of mine, uh, have gone into really vigorous opposition on that ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, this is a, it's an analysis and a framing which is u- useful all across the political spectrum. Now, do you think that the uh, people from the Reagan administration were true believers in, in trickle-down theory? Or, or I guess the real question is, when did this all start to go wrong? I, I know. I mean, I, can't, I obviously don't think everybody in the Reagan administration was a true believer. I think there were, that clientelism was rife in that administration. The Interior Department at EPA it was absolutely uh, scandalous. Uh, but I do know there were people there, people of my generation, I uh, came into political life most actively in the early 1980s, uh, who 
genuinely were believers of the of of the tradition of conservative economics. Milton Friedman, Friedrich von Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, people like that, and they. I, I, they were sincere. I mean, I talked to them enough I, I, to know that they were, uh, they had, uh, their beliefs were genuinely held. And they were backed up, incidentally, in the academy, which I had just come out of. This was the standard doctrine of economics departments, graduate schools. Uh, where did it go wrong? It was going wrong all through this period. But certainly by the time we got uh, to the turn of the, uh, of, of the century, uh, there was no such uh, intellectual basis uh, for the Bush Cheney administration, it was just purely a basis of uh, of, of lobbies and their and their agents oper- taking over and being assigned essentially every major function of government. Once the Gingrich Congress came in, the lobbies took over the writing of legislation. As such, uh, there was no longer any pretense that this was that the public interest even existed, and that's that that's the issue that's at stake. Here. That that was the uh, Tom Delay K Street project. Sure, that, absolutely. That was the that became, and yeah. then it eventually morphed into what we saw in the early part of this administration with the Jack Abramoffs and and, and that ilk. That was it was uh, people like Abramoff were absolutely absolutely instrumental, uh, carrying water, currying favors, um, acting as bagmen. That, that that's I'm sorry. I was just saying we're speaking with. James Galbraith. The book is The Predator State. And did go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say that this just became the logical extension of that of that rationale, and we're now faced with the, with these uh, bailouts. Would you would you characterize the proposed bailouts of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as a an extension of some of the things that you're talking about in the book? No, I actually would not. Okay. One of the things that the book uh, argues is that. Uh, Many people believe, and particularly outside this country, believe that we became somehow in the 1980s the archetype of a libertarian, free market, deregulated, privatized economy. It's not at all true. Uh, A very large part of our economy uh, runs through the public sector, supports the middle class. That's true of Social Security. It's true of Medicare. uh, It's true of uh, vast amounts of money that go into education and higher education, uh, and it's true of housing. Uh, and Fran, uh, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the government-sponsored enterprises which created the secondary mortgage market, were in fact the solid basis uh, of the New Deal and post-New Deal construction of a country which most everybody owns, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters of the population are in houses that they own. Uh, a subprime mortgage was one which... Uh, um, did not meet the standards that could be accepted by those entities. Um, what happened here uh, was that uh, these entities have been under attack, as Social Security was, by predatory interests, people who, uh, uh, companies, organizations, firms, who wanted their business, who did not want the government guaranteeing uh, and holding up the, you know, the, the, the guarantee, uh, providing guarantees that would make uh, mortgages basically economical for such vast numbers of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, uh, I mean, very much part of the debate, part of the attempt to sell off those stocks. Uh, friends of mine who watch this closely argue that there was an enormous speculative attack on these enterprises. Uh, and I think in this instance, uh, the government, uh, the Treasury Department, basically realized that it was 
too dangerous to let that happen and actually um, uh, help the line, and those, those, those enterprises will now survive. They will survive. This is the re- I was reading recently that uh, Fre- uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are this kind of amorphous sort of blend of public and private, and that uh, this, this has been th- – that this uh, latest go-around with the, uh, the problems with the uh, loans is that – uh, people were advocating that they become much more of a nationalized, sort of a, a much more of a public institution uh, and, and sort of squeezing out some of the, the more private uh, aspects. Yeah, I've never seen a really good argument for having them as, pure, as private enterprises okay. because it does, it does create a kind of uh, uh, CEO class for those two companies uh, which, uh, in which you have people who are behaving like private executives uh, and who are paying themselves vastly inflated stra- salaries uh, and who um, are um, we're, we're, we're taking risks that those two enterprises probably shouldn't have been taking, but they they still remain the solid, the relatively solid part of the housing market. Uh, it's not like the you know the funds that Bear Stearns <laughs> had, which uh, went completely um, bankrupt, totally without value, and which precipitated the collapse of that firm. I uh, some time ago I heard an interview that you have you did, and you talked about this uh, the the issues that that are uh, the problem with this current economic I don't know slump recession however whatever the characterization might be, and that one of the problems that were that is going on is that because these instruments these loans that were packaged and repackaged and uh, all different kinds of ways to to the point where we don't know what the real value of them is. At one point, you were describing the real crisis here is is that banks don't trust other banks with with what they're trading back and forth with the value of that. Is this still as big a problem as you were talking about before? Is it getting worse? Is it getting any better? I, I think it is. Uh, it's been going on for a year, almost exactly a year now. August eleventh of last year, it broke, and I don't think it has uh, been resolved. The problem is that banks, through their special purpose vehicles uh, off books entities uh, have vast portfolios nobody really knows what it means uh, and rather than basically holding a you know a series of commodities like treasury bonds or or properly rated public corporations bonds they're holding these you know slices and dices of of collections of mortgages uh, and they, they, the other banks simply can't value them. It's it's, it's unauditable, uh, and as a result, banks are basically won't lend other banks unless there's essentially an implicit uh, guarantee of liquidity from the central bank, which is what the central bank has been doing to to uh, to prevent the whole system from melting down. It's a very serious problem, and I don't think it goes away very easily. And the other piece of it is that the underlying housing problem is something that takes a long time to work through. We had this in Texas in the middle 1980s. From 1985 to 1993 or 94, vast parts of the state were underwater in the sense that people's homes were not worth what they owed on them. Uh, and it creates all kinds of problems, but particularly it just kills the housing industry. And that problem is now there for uh, the whole country. Uh, you can see it in the you know, in, in, the, in the decline of housing credit, in the decline of construction. Um, it's not enough to throw the whole economy into recession because the housing sector isn't that big, but it's enough to create, put a, a real drag on growth and suggest the next five, ten years are going to be very problematic. 
Was was this a collapse of IndyBank, which wasn't even on the watch list, as I understand it, with the uh, the feds? Uh, that is potentially, you know, someone I just heard this, the potentially the to support IndyBank, uh, if theoretically, if the amount of money that's uh, owed to the uh, to the uh, um, the uh, de- the depositors, thank you, I couldn't get that out, uh, would be something on the order of fifteen percent of the Federal Reserve that they have set aside to protect banks, which is a significant amount. And there's uh, another 150 banks on this watch list. Are we? Be- is this beginning to un- unravel in, in, in terms of our confidence in the banking system? Or- uh, well, I think that um, the a difference between the United States and the U.K., uh, which did have an actual consumer run on a bank last year, Northern Rock, uh, is that... Uh, we, we didn't, in fact, go uh, overboard, as far overboard, in saying every person for themselves. And for that reason, people still do have a lot of confidence that if a bank fails, most people's deposits will be secure uh, because the government will come in. It's an important public function. In the case that you mentioned, uh, I believe that there are serious, serious questions about the adequacy of uh, the regulatory agencies in your area uh, and about the people who are running them. Uh, the, these, are, these are issues which I think are being looked at in Washington, uh, and uh, they, uh, uh, they reflect the general attitude of this administration, but not just this administration, was also present in the previous one, uh, that uh, uh, favors... Uh, getting rid of regulations and getting rid of consumer protections over um, taking a view, which is that you know, the government has a responsibility to try to stabilize the financial system. It's not intrinsically a stable part of the economy. It's prone to abuse and crisis. And the only way that it worked so well over 30 years from 1945 uh, to the middle 1970s was the presence of a rather strict and uh, rigorous regulatory framework, which got dismantled in the 80s and 90s. And that's the major source of our problem. And that's not only in housing, it's also in the commodities markets, which become rampantly speculative, uh, and elsewhere in the economy. We're speaking with uh, James Galbraith. The book is The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandon the Free Market and Why Liberals Should Too. Now, are there any mechanisms left to... uh to get back to to get back to normal again to uh, and and to uh, regulate the predators at this point uh, is there a, is there an easy way out of this? Well, I in the in the book I I, I basically point to three things. Okay. Uh, I take the three most despised aspects of the of the progressive agenda. One is the government needs to have an independent capacity to think. This is called planning. Uh, and we need to be able to do it in this country, not to have every government decision basically given to it uh, by private interests with very short-term and narrow and specialized uh, objectives. Uh, so an independent capacity to think about particularly environmental questions, the problem of climate change, extremely important, needs to be built up through the educational system and into the highest levels of the government itself. That's number one. Number two... There's nothing wrong with standards. We talk a lot about standards as they apply to trade agreements, but we should be applying them and thinking about them as they apply inside our own borders. 
Uh, and this is a process which, you know, democratic processes ought to be able to do. And they, they include standards for the conduct of financial institutions, regulations, uh, all of the standard things, environmental health and safety, which have been uh, totally eviscerated in recent years, substantially eviscerated, uh, and standards for, for wages, uh, minimum wages, living wages, are reasonable things to have to work out because they're basically fundamentally social decisions and not market decisions. And once you've stabilized those things, you give people a basis for private enterprise to plan effectively what its cost structures are going to be, where profit opportunities are, and you begin to move the economy forward. And the third thing is the country is financially interconnected to the world. Uh, it used to be that we gave the world a reason to support us as the wealthiest country because we provided, among other things, international security, collective security. We were a linchpin of that. Since the end of the Cold War, that hasn't been terribly important, and most of the world no longer has lost a lot of trust in America's position as a provider of security. We need to reestablish that position, and we also need to be doing something that the rest of the world values. And again, I think the problem of energy and the problem of climate change provides an opportunity because we have the infrastructure, universities, research labs, innovating firms, to do things if we mobilize them in the right way. And if we do, it seems to me the rest of the world will say, okay, you know, this is not something China's going to do. It's not something Germany's going to do. The United States can, in fact, do it. We'll, we'll extend them the credit, let it get the job done. That would be the basis to me of, 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 of bringing the, the whole system back into focus and putting it on a track where it's doing something productive, raising living standards, solving problems. Well, James Galbraith, it's easy to focus on the, the negative aspects of the current economic situation, but uh, it is also important to point, as you just mentioned, the research facil- facilities are world-class universities. And that the American worker is among, if not the most productive worker in the world today. Uh, and that the parts of the economy that aren't doing so well are the more speculative parts. And the parts that are doing pretty well are more of the, the, the meat and potato kind of economic uh, segments of the economy. Am, am I correct? Um, yeah, I think that I'm a great fan of this country, actually. I, uh, yeah. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time in Europe. I've spent a lot of time in Asia. There are people who believe that the Europeans have a much better social welfare system. I, you know, I'm not one of them. Uh, there are lots of things wrong with the way we do education and health care uh, and other things. But uh, I think there are great strengths in our ability to concentrate resources, uh, to do research and development, uh, to, tra- to be transformative. Uh, and we should be we absolutely should be building on that. The problem with being transformative is that it's very closely related to being speculative. Uh, and you have, to, you have to keep focused and you have to keep sort of batting down and, and holding, holding the, the speculative forces at bay. Uh, or they will simply, make, they will simply clog, the, clog the gears and make the system come to a, 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 you know, a crashing halt, which is what happened in 2000. I mean, you had a you had a vast uh, technological boom, uh, but ultimately it collapsed because of the, it was unsustainable from a financial point of view. Stock market went down. That was the end of it. Funds dried up. Uh, in the next round, when we get to work on our energy problems, we're going to be needing to be able to sustain that effort not just for seven or eight years of the internet boom, but for maybe thirty, mm-hmm. forty. And so thinking about how to do that in a really concrete way, 
seems to me to be the task that we ought to be. Uh, uh, isn't isn't the federal government a key element in this? Isn't aren't they the ones who, sh- as you said, set, sort of set the standard? Be investing and uh, in in this in this endeavor. Yes, absolutely. The federal government is the government the that, that, that that controls those resources. States can be useful. States can pioneer. They can do pilots. They can, uh, in some cases, in California's great example, they can provide the infrastructure uh, that you know makes them second to none. Yeah. Uh, but the federal government has to has to has to carry a lot of water in this. Uh, we're speaking with James Galbraith. The book is The Predator State. Um, go ahead. Well, given the uh, federal government's importance in all of this, are you encouraged at all by the two candidates running for president right now? Well, I'm a great fan of Barack Obama's, uh, and I think that we're, you know, it's partly uh, the qualities of mind and leadership that I see in him, but also the uh, fact that his campaign was built upon a much broader popular base, a much broader fundraising base than we have seen practically in my political lifetime, which goes back to the late 1960s, early 1970s. Uh, And so I, I think that that promises, uh, you know, kind of transforming change over time in the way we do politics in this country and may weaken the special interests and create a new sense of a, of, a, of, a, of a public interest. It takes time to define exactly what that means. It'll certainly take a lot of time to build that into the government. The economic situation next year, I fear, is going to be really tough. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's going to be a big, big challenge. But on the whole, you know, compared to where we were in 2005, after the election of 2006, the repudiation of the Republican leadership in the Congress, 2008 is shaping up to be, you know, very, uh, is a very, is a year with real possibilities, and I think that's sensed all around the world at the moment. I do think you're going to see uh, even more significant gains in the House and Senate, for sure, by uh, Democrats, and I think uh, a, a more progressive uh, uh, Democrat than we've seen in the past. I think the, there's been a real... And I th- I've seen some recognition within Barack Obama of late, uh, saying that uh, he he's beginning to understand that he is he is part of a message that's being sent. That he is he is carrying the water for a lot of people who are very very upset with the direction of this country. Yeah, and I like the way uh, you know I like the leadership uh, in the in the House of Representatives, particularly these days, which was the group that survived the whole Reagan period. So you know, look at Nancy Pelosi. You look at at Barney Frank at the, in, in the financial services, what used to be the banking committee. These good people uh, who, who have risen to positions of real influence uh, and authority there, and I think that's, that's a hopeful situation. It's not so much, though, that the Democrats have distinguished themselves in Congress in the last two years. They've done okay, but I don't think it's that. I think it's that the Republican Party has got dug itself into a very deep hole it's allowed itself to be identified all throughout the country as the party of uh, a deeply reactionary faction based in Texas, based in the Deep South. Mm-hmm. And nobody else, not in the West, not in the Northeast, not in the Midwest, wants to be identified with them anymore. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, t- people tell me that next year there'll be two Republican congressmen from New York. Two. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. And how do, you come, how do you come back from that? It's going to be... Very hard. It may be a, uh, we may see a, uh, you know it may be coming to a period where we get a real transformation in the 
composition of party politics in this country. Yeah, I think you're right. I do think you're right. Do you uh, do you see? Uh, I'm, a, I'm since I'm a big fan, I, I'm constantly talking about the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt and things. Do you think if Barack came out with a, a sort of a New Deal, uh, essentially repeated? Uh, Franklin Roosevelt's War Freedom Speech, do you think that it would be well-received at this point? I, I'm not so... I mean, I'm obviously a great fan of the New Deal. I'm a great fan of the Great Society. I'm, I'm at the Johnson School where we know a lot about yeah, that. This is true. Uh, you know, but I think Barack Obama, uh, let's assume that uh, he becomes president, I think he needs to um, define something that is new, uh, that places the U.S. in its context in the world today. Franklin Roosevelt came in in the context of a financial collapse, something not entirely dissimilar to what we're seeing now, but more serious because the safety nets weren't there. Um, But he didn't, the global crisis didn't come until a bit later, uh, until the late 30s, early 40s. So he wasn't simultaneously dealing with a problem of, let's say, national credit. At that point, the U.S. was a creditor's country because it held the debts from World War One. We're in a much more, uh, we're much more deeply integrated and much more interdependent uh, than the U.S. was in 1933. We're uh, certainly much less dominant than the U.S. was in 1965. So Barack Obama's got to come in and, and there's an extraordinary amount of skill, an extraordinary amount of, uh, you know, of, of, of discourse, public education to get people to understand the the, the reality of the country, because it's very easy for a guy like John McCain to say, you know, heck, we're going to be number one, uh, and that's going to be uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the way, way it is to give people the illusion that the world hasn't changed, but the world has changed. Yeah. Well, we've been speaking with James Galbraith. The book is The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market and Why Liberals Should, too. Thank you, James Galbraith, for being here on Weekly Signals. A great pleasure. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.